Well, we're going to make a start. Uh, and Tish, as you may know, this will go out in podcast form too. But there are some folks, uh, myself included, who just really like the live component of the webinar. So uh, I am the one who gets to do the question asking. Uh, we don't uh, invite questions because there are just so many. And then we tend to go over kind of the 30 minutes or so time frame that we have set. So let's, uh, let's make a go of it. Welcome one and all to Todd Talks, where my special guest today is Tish Harrison Warren. Tish, who is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America, has worked in various ministry settings for over a decade as a campus minister with InterVarsity graduate and faculty ministries, as an associate rector, and uh, working with those who are uh, uh, in addiction and in poverty through various churches and nonprofit organizations. Currently, Tish is writer in residence at Resurrection South Austin and is a weekly columnist with the New York Times and a monthly columnist with Christianity Today. Her articles and essays have also appeared in print, among other places, with Religious News Service, Comment Magazine, and The Point Magazine. Many of you, like I, will know Tish through her most recent writings that are books, her award-winning Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices for Everyday Life, and then more recently in 2021, Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. Tish is a founding member of the Pelican Project and a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum, and she lives with her husband and three children uh, in Austin again, having moved back recently. Tish, welcome to Todd Talks, and thanks for joining me today. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. So, Tish, I wonder if we could kind of get the proverbial ball rolling by me asking you one of these unfair kind of global questions. So <laughs> one does not just wake up one day and uh, find oneself to be an Anglican priest and an award-winning author. <laughs> I think that uh, both I and those who listen would be really interested in hearing uh, bits and bobs about your journey that have brought you to the place where you are now? Yeah, that's a big, big question. I could take the whole half hour. It could take longer than that. It, it certainly has been a journey. I, I grew up um, Baptist. I'm telling you that because it's true, but also it's Baylor. So I was um, baptized as, as a um, six-year-old, I think. So um, so did not grow up Anglican or even, uh, I, I think my church would have been sort of self-consciously non-liturgical. Of course, now I don't think any church is non-liturgical. It, it had a liturgy, but I, um, but it would have understood itself that way for sure. So this could be a really, I'm going to have to try really hard to compress this, but um, grew up uh, and um, came to know and love Jesus at a pretty early age and, um, and, and grew. I mean, I, I was discipled and, and God, um, showed up to me in some pretty, uh, real and palpable ways as a child. Uh, and, and so I think my faith was cemented, um, in, in some suffering and some childhood suffering, but in, but mostly by God kind of showing up 
amid that. And then in college, um, through a lot of failure, honestly, through an encounter with sin, which I um, didn't, uh, I, I, in the, in growing up, the, um, the gospel was something that was more like a door that you walked through. Um, as opposed to the whole of your Christian life, the gospel was accepting Jesus in your heart. And then the rest was kind of your own growth and sanctification. So really um, through encountering my own failure, my own sin, I, um, I ended up um, becoming reformed. The joke is I asked John Calvin in my heart um, and um not, uh, I mean, yeah. So I then ended up Presbyterian for a while for about 10 years. I was in a PCA church and, um, really, uh, sort of accidentally ended up becoming Anglican. We, we, some of it, I, I'm married to someone with a PhD in church history. So studying church history in seminary, learning about the tradition in my mind, church history kind of began in the New Testament and then sort of jumped 2,000 years and to land at my church. Um, but then also, um, I think uh, it, it was just the sovereignty of God. I mean, we, we looked for a church near us and happened to, we couldn't find a church in the denomination we were in. And so we happened to stumble on this Episcopal. Um, uh, it was this evangelical Episcopal church uh, and we only went there for a short time, but I, it was deeply, I mean, it, it ruined us for life that the liturgy, um, really what became such an enormous part of our, of my worship and, and my husband and our, our life together. So we ended up Anglican, uh, the award-winning author would be a totally different story. I mean, I did. It was also an accident. I, I never thought I'd be a writer. Or, I, I love writing. I've always loved writing. I have, um, I've found poems and stories and things I wrote as a child. Um, but I, you know, I was going to, I was in campus ministry and I wanted to be a pastor and work at a church. And, um, that I was very happy with that. I, still happy with that. I mean, I'm, <laughs> that's, um, that's a good life. And so I, um, the, the writer thing sort of happened. I, I strongly felt called by God to write. And that is, I am very hesitant to say that because that's, I actually think lots of people feel called by God to write. I've, I've had lots of people say, you know, I, I think Jesus wants to be on the New York times bestseller list. And I don't, it wasn't, it wasn't, certainly it wasn't like that. I, it, it felt like it was such a, it was felt very, I, I didn't know I would be a, an author and do this for my job. It, it felt like just kind of a small step. And it was also extremely rare. I mean, I've never had that kind of sense of calling about anything, including getting married. I mean, I was not as clear about even marrying my husband as I was um, sort of that I needed to, to try to, write in some small ways. It started with poetry writing, honestly. And, um, and then I just, a friend asked me to write, um, for a blog of universities. And it kind of, once I started writing more and more people started asking me to write and it grew. And, um, I mean, it's funny cause I just 
you know, Facebook does those time hop um, things. And I just saw the video this morning that uh, five years ago, Liturgy of the Ordinary, the, the first physical copy arrived at my house. And, to, and I watched a video of me opening it with my daughter, who was five at the time. And, um, and the, um, I, I just, I mean, I remember I had no idea. It's been an incredibly life-changing experience and, and sort of the way my career has grown since then. But I mean, at the time I was just hoping, you know, that my immediate family would buy multiple copies. And um, so that it's been, it was, it's been a, a joyful surprise for sure. Well, Tish, I had heard that you were funny and uh, you're, you're not disappointing. <laughs> Ask John Calvin into my heart. There's some wonderful one-liners already. <laughs> so um, let's let's talk a bit uh, uh, about your writing. I mean, obviously, by God's good grace, your lines are falling in pleasant places. And this is uh, really exciting, not just for you, but for uh, for many of us in the Christian community who are finding ourselves very enriched and encouraged by the work that you're doing. So your most recent book, uh, Prayer in the Night, among other things, it examines human suffering and vulnerability. And I wonder, for those who've yet to read the book, uh, uh, hear me, have yet to read the book, uh, go, go and buy it. <laughs> Um, right now, yeah, get, hey, well, available this moment. <laughs> yeah, you you can do it at the same time. You can listen to Tish and go to Amazon, right? <laughs> so, um, yep. but but kind of summarize um, maybe what you've written in this book uh, or or even elsewhere about some of the the more salient points about human suffering, vulnerability that that, that pertain in important ways uh, for Christ followers. Yeah. Um, so this book is is an exploration of um, suffering, particularly the, of the concept of theodicy, which is um, the question of how can God be good and all powerful and and bad things still happen in, to us and in the world. Um, but it's a very practical look at that. I at one point pitched to IVP that the subtitle would be a practical theodicy. And they said, no one will know what that means <laughs> except for theologians. So I, um, I, <laughs> that was scrapped, but that's truly how I understand the book. Um, but it goes into a little bit of my own story. The book's not a memoir, but it, it does deal a lot with that, um, particularly the year uh, 2017, which in our family's life, we we lost my dad that year. My dad passed away suddenly. We moved across the country, and we um, we had two miscarriages in a row. Um, one was a late miscarriage, a second trimester miscarriage. So we we lost a little boy um, at at fourteen weeks. Then, so um, so in some ways, I mean, I in fact, even when I when I first felt sort of drawn towards this book, I, I was arguing with it and arguing with God about it and said, you know, I can't write a book on suffering. Like my, my life has been decent, you know, and, um, and, and, a, and there is a genre of Christian books that sort of deal with catastrophic suffering, the books written after people have lost a child or been in, gotten a terminal diagnosis or, um, 
experienced horrific abuse. Um, so, and those are important and good books. I mean, I, I've read, I recommend many of them in the in this um, footnote, the end notes of my book. Um, and I just felt, but that's not my story. And I, I thought this is, I mean, this was a hard year, but a lot of people move, a lot of people lose parents, a lot of people have miscarriages. Um, but I felt like the ordinariness of, of the suffering was, um, ended up, ended up actually being, um, somewhat what drew me to the book is that this question of theodicy, why do bad things happen in the world or where is God when we suffer? Those questions are usually framed around really, um, just, just, just deeply traumatic suffering. But I actually think this is, it's, in other words, the struggle with the Odyssey or where's God when we suffer isn't a special class of people who've suffered horrifically. This is a human question. This is a human problem. And, um, and we all sort of compare our suffering with each other and think we're not kind of worthy of, uh, of grief or of wrestling with these questions. Um, but it, so I took, um, it starts kind of in my own story, um, but it goes, uh, the, the book sort of expands out from there to look at the, the dilemma of human vulnerability that we, from the mo moment we're born to the moment we die, are deeply vulnerable. Uh, and I, I bring up in the, the book that vulnerability, the term vulnerability, the, I mean, that's from the term to wound in Latin. So it simply means we're able to be wounded. We're able to be harmed in physically and mentally and emotionally. And God apparently isn't interested in making us invulnerable, right? And so, um, so what does it mean to walk with and worship a God that um, doesn't take away suffering and doesn't take away woundedness? It doesn't take away our ability to be wounded. Um, how do we continue to walk with God in the midst of that and, and meet God in our vulnerability? And, and how does Jesus meet us in his vulnerability that Christ entered into? And so the book um, uh, deals with that in a large way, but in, in, in that's kind of the big theme. The, the structure of the book is centered around one nighttime prayer of um, the Anglican nighttime prayer office, which is called Compline. And it, so it's structured on this prayer, it's keep watch dear Lord with those who work or watch or weep this night. And I won't say the whole prayer, but it goes on from there. And the, the prayer isn't, you know, it's a prayer, it's written. It's not a mat, it's not scripture, it's not magical, but it was a way for me, I needed a way, the way that I've explained it to folks is that it was like a, a tether a guideline. I felt like I needed to get into these dark, murky questions in my own heart, which was, I don't know how to trust God. I mean, that's, that's, this book is me struggling with, I, how do I trust God? Um, but it, um, the image that comes to mind in scuba diving, when you're going in a deep water cave, um, particularly if it's deeper and darker than you've been, you, you tether yourself to, um, to something higher towards the surface so that you don't get lost. Um, 
and and so if you you can find your way back to the surface and it felt like that i felt like um god was inviting me into these questions about how do i trust him and i didn't know how to go into them without just without getting lost and without um sort of losing myself or losing my faith and this this felt like a tether it felt like a guideline of a structure that i could kind of get in these questions and and um look at them in a more um systematic way um i remember a volume that bart ehrman wrote on uh, god's problem and i uh, uh and ehrman uh posited that God's problem was, uh, in fact, suffering. So that suffering existed. So for you to be able to think through theodicy on uh, a level of autobiography is, is a great gift. I mean, if we've thought deeply, uh, it is doubt. Uh, it, it is it is uh, doubtless that we have doubted deeply, too. So I want to kind of go there. Um, in the church, it seems, if I may generalize, as a whole, Tish, uh, we seem to be uncomfortable discussing uh, the times when we sense God's absence mm -hmm. uh, or when we experience doubt or loss. I, I wonder if, if that rings true to you, that observation, and if so, uh, why do you feel this might be the case? Yeah. I, I do think that's true. Um, that's mostly anecdotal, but uh, that feels true to me. I've heard that from lots of people. I've experienced that. Um, why do I think that's the case? Uh, there's a few things. One, man, I think pastors, and I'm speaking as someone who has been on staff at churches and in um, campus ministry and who preaches regularly um, that I think we sometimes feel like we have to um, defend the reputation of God. I think we've, um, one of the, the things that was probably most life-changing in my preaching is when I encountered a really hard um, passage. I can't remember what it was. I think it might've been the Syrophoenician woman, but I'm not sure. And I was struggling deeply with it. And I was rewriting the sermon and I was, and my husband, who's much wiser than me, I was wrestling and talking to him. And he said, um, Tish, Jesus doesn't need your defense. He doesn't need you as his PR team. Um, he, Jesus is fully capable of, of speaking on his own. <laughs> he doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to like clean up his reputation. Um, and I, and I think that there, there's a great freedom in that as pastors. I, I don't mean, of course we need to, we need to correct folks misperceptions of God. I mean, that's a, that's like a, that is in the 21st century. So much of what we do is correct people's misconceptions of what Christianity is and who God is. But what I mean is I do think that we, we worry about getting into these hard questions um, that, that Christianity doesn't have sort of pat answers for or easy answers um, that we, I think, I think it, we worry about um, needing to defend God in that. I think that's part of it. I think it also makes us feel vulnerable to not have all the answers. I think we want 
um, to present the faith in its kind of most um, most sort of clear and and convincing form. And the fact is, um, the problem of suffering is really a problem. I mean, it really is a deep, deep struggle, uh, and a and um, and so I think that we we worry about the vulnerability of sharing that. I mean, I think also we're human beings, and humans tend to want to shrink from bad feelings. Uh, we we want to shrink from from feeling the icky stuff that you have to actually feel and deal with to um, address this issue honestly. Um, so I think those are reasons that we want to sort of focus on victory of Jesus. We want to focus on resurrection, not death. We want to focus on, um, we, it, on things that seem less doubtful or less, um, difficult or that, that might promote doubt in folks. Um, but I think, I honestly think, I think that by not addressing these things head on, we're setting people up for uh, leaving the faith. We're setting people up for apostasy, for um, for thinking, well, if I have these doubts, which are often absolutely like genuine and valid questions, that therefore they they leave, they leave the church, um, or we're set we're setting people up for. Um, I mean, honestly, for atheism, by, by, by selling them a version of God that's not true. Well, that's so thoughtful, helpful, um, personal, profound. Tish, uh, let, me, let me pivot a bit um, because I could talk to you all day, but I'm signed up to talk to you for a little over a half of hour. So <laughs> I want to pivot a bit. Um, uh, first of all, thank you for your New York Times columns. Um, in these recent columns, at least as I read them, uh, you are pondering how people in general, and perhaps Christian people in particular, can live well, uh, can live together uh, amid pandemic and polarization. So for those who've yet to read these columns yet, um, what are some of the things that you've been thinking? What are some of the things that you've been saying? Maybe just a, a theme or two that's kind of been at the frontal lobe and things that you're trying to say, hey, I'm flagging these. These need attention. Yeah, well, that's a good question. So if you haven't read, do please sign up for my New York Times um, newsletter. You have to subscribe, but you can it, it can you can subscribe just digitally and get my newsletter. Um, it comes weekly. It's hard for me to sum up a theme so far. I mean, in the interest of being honest and vulnerable, I do, I'm so new at this. It's, I've been in this three months now. So I don't feel like I have sort of an overarching, like the, the, the theme of my newsletter is faith in, in, in life, faith in daily life. So that sometimes looks like looking at Christian practices, like um, I've written on silence, um, I've written on sort of how do we respond to um, the disappointment of COVID sort of seeming to go on and on and on and not stop. Um, so I've uh, responded to some of that, but then I also talk about, I mean, part of faith in life is talking about 
politics, right? Or faith and science is what I wrote on this last week. Um, and um, so uh, in terms of kind of what I'm, I don't know yet uh, if there's like an overall, I, I write right now on whatever I find interesting week to week. Um, that I think other people might find interesting too. So a lot of it right now is just getting to know my readers, my readers getting to know me. Um, and one of the beautiful things is that New York Times allows me to do that. I mean, I was very upfront with them from the beginning. I said, you know, I'm not, I'm speaking out of, a, you know, as a Anglican priest and, a, and, and, I hope to, to try to be a fairly orthodox one. And, um, and, and, and I, and I want readers from any and all religious background or no religious background who, who are just asking big questions about life and truth and um, maybe are interested in this perspective, but that I, in other words, I said, you know, I can't write a kind of a, a general religion column or a comparative religion column. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that that's just not my expertise. I couldn't do that. And they really invited me to speak out of my own voice. And so I get to speak into the issues of our time as a Christian um, and as an Anglican priest. So in general, though, I do think some common themes that come up are just things that are near to my heart, which are um, grace, grace and sin, the gospel, um, but also practices, Christian practice. So how do we live this thing out? If we, um, what are spiritual practices that help us become more connected to God and also more human, more um, able to live as vulnerable, as limited people in the world? I think um, really one of the gifts the church has to offer this the world right now is reminding people what it means to be a human being, that we are not machines. We are not um, brands. We are human beings with limitations of skin that in the incarnation um, speaks so deeply, I think, to this. Um, but then I also have um, a, a part of practices is what does it mean to be a Christian in the world, in our culture? Um, so I deal with larger questions of faith and science, faith and race, um, and, and also um, pluralism. How, how do we, I, I'm deeply concerned about the kind of polarization that we're seeing um, and the illiberalism that we see on both the left and the right right now. And, um, and so um, one of my most popular pieces so far has been about what are sort of small daily practices, it's the practice part, of repair, of repairing our culture. I mean, I guess if there's, that's a, I haven't, so really I'm three months in this job. I'm just thinking maybe I'm doing some like <laughs> job counseling with you here. But I do think if there's a word to put on my, um, on my, my New York Times newsletter right now, it's the concept of repair. What does it mean to um, repair the way we talk about God as a culture, which is very, very broken, I think. What does it mean to repair the relationship with the church, with society and broader culture? What does it mean to repair our relationship with God? Um, or more so, I think, uh, um, 
what does it mean for God to repair our relationship with God? Um, but also what does it mean for us to repair a deeply, deeply divided and broken society um, where uh, we, we hate each other? I mean, we, there's a recent um, a University of Virginia study that showed a majority of Trump voters and a large minority, over 40% of Biden voters, um, and over over 50% of Trump voters, I think it might've been over 55% favored um, splitting the country along ideological lines, uh, secession uh, along political lines. So um, the, the amount of vitriol um, is high and it's not only outside the church, right? It's inside the church as well. And so what does it mean to follow a God of all truth, God of peace uh, in um, our culture when the church itself has become captive to, um, to political parties and to um, ideologies that um, aren't, that, that are more shaped by culture than the, the scriptures. So, that's some of what I write on. I, I, I haven't thought about the word repair, but I'm going to, I think that that, I think that's sort of the project. Uh, a much needed project, rep, repair the breaches, uh, repair the walls. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I, as, as you were just reflecting, Tish, I, I was thinking to myself, it's remarkable how much conflict this little thing has caused. I know, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> It's true. I, and I want to know if I can, I know we have to go, but I want to nuance the answer that I'm not the one repairing. I mean, if anything, I'm a herald. I'm a herald of the repair that God is offering. Yeah. 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 I, I don't really, I can't repair anything. I mean, really, yeah. it, my husband could attest I'm much better at breaking things than repairing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tish, before, before we let you go, you have time for one more? Uh, sure. Yeah. Before we let you go, uh, first of all, I'd love for you to end our time in prayer, if that's okay. So I'll just kind of uh, get, give you a, a bit of a warning. Uh, but uh, help folks who are joining us today uh, know know what's next from uh, from Tish Warren. Okay, so what's what's your present book project? Uh, have have you signed anything? Uh, what can we look forward to in yeah. the not too distant future? Okay. Well. Um... So honestly, the biggest sort of rock in my, I don't know, I'm thinking of when you put rocks in bottles okay, we'll in my jar, yeah. it right now is the New York Times column. It's taking up an enormous amount of time. So, um, so subscribe to that. And, but that does, that is sort of um, putting out, I'm, it, it's kind of, it's uh, taking away time from other things. I also have three kids, so that's, but, um, but the things that I'm working on, uh, are there's a series IVP is putting out, uh, called the fullness of time series that, um, there's, uh, seven of us together that are taking, uh, we've divided the church seasons. So we're each writing on one church season. And when you put them all together, it'll be an entire year. So you can buy them individually or, or, and the idea is for churches to be able to walk through these devotionally as small groups or, or individuals over a year. 
So my husband and I are co-writing that um, together uh, on, and it's on Advent. So um, that will not be out until next year, but that'll be out sometime next year. Um, and then I also have a child, the, the first thing, the next thing that's going to come out is a children's book um, called, uh, oh no, I've, it's called Little Prayers for Ordinary Days. Um, and it's, I wrote it with two friends um, from the, um, it's a, called Rain for Roots. It's a Christian band for children that um, was uh, Katie Bowser, Flo, Paris Oaks, and Sandra McCracken were all part of it. And so Katie and Flo and I um, have written a small book of prayers for children. It's um, because the Book of Common Prayer is difficult to access for small, it's kind of, does his age kind of four to eight. Um, little, you could wiggle room on both sides, but um, it's beautiful. I just got the illustrations back from it. I can say that because I didn't illustrate it and it's, um, it's lovely. Um, and it's just a small book of, of prayers for, for things like bath time, bedtime, when you pet your aunt, your cat or dog, when you um, go to school, when you come home from school. So just prayers for children to pray throughout the day. Um, so those are, those are kind of the biggest projects that I'm working on currently. Well, there's, there's a lot for us to look forward to, not only your weekly newsletter, but uh, these uh, volumes that are forthcoming. So yeah. I, I should also say, because they would want me to, I still have a column for Christianity Today. So that comes out. Yeah. You can monthly. have that. Yeah. yeah monthly. And uh, so, Tish, uh, not to put you on the spot, but I'm wondering if you have one of those prayers for children around uh, that could be your closing prayer. You may not uh, pray as you would, uh, but uh, uh, it would be lovely to hear one. Yeah, I would be happy to, but it's going to take me a second to look it up. Um, is that okay? Because it's of course on... this way we'll get to keep you for another second. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to, you want to like ask an, a, another question, you can ask yeah. another question. Right now. <clears throat> so, I mean, how is it? Uh, how is it that you came about writing uh, this book of prayers in the first place? I wonder because um, uh, was it was it birthed out of the fact that you, you yourself have children, uh, as you all are praying is it uh, because as a priest you've recognized that prayer can sometimes be hard for children maybe a combination of both or or something else yeah well it was partly um ivp approached me about doing a kid's book that kind of um goes with uh some the books i've both both prayer in the night and liturgy of the ordinary and i thought no no, no i'm not a kid's author i don't want to that's i don't want to do that um, meanwhile, my children were saying, mom, when are you going to write a book for kids? Why do you always write these boring grown-up books? Um, I don't know. I actually have to pull my other computer to get it's on. It's not on the computer that I'm working on. So I'm not going to be able to give you a prayer for children. That's okay. That's okay. So, um, so I have folks wondering though, when are we going to get to see this book? Uh, this, this children's book of prayers. When's it, it I think it's coming out in April. Ah, of this year. So very, very good next year. So yeah. well, months, whatever that is six months, you know, so yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we'll be we'll be looking forward uh, to to seeing that, and uh, as well as your columns, Tish, and we. We can't wait to find uh, uh, an excuse to get you uh, uh, to, 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 to true it, to preach in our chapel. Yeah. So that, so that to finish that thought, basically, I, these friends of mine uh, were writing a children's book and asked me to join them. And so it became this project together. I had a book of prayers when I was really young, when I was five or six, that I ended up loving. It was, pro- it was honestly probably my first experience of written prayers um, in my whole life even though I was Baptist, when I got baptized, someone gave this to me and it meant so much to me. And so I just couldn't, I couldn't pass up the opportunity of making something like that for my own children, but also for, you know, this book of, I mean, I remember sleeping with this little book of prayers when I was a kid, because it meant so much to me. So I, my children and my friends persuaded me is the short answer to that. And my own experience persuaded me. That's great. I slept with my basketball and you slept with your book of prayer. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, How how remarkable for uh, us to have an opportunity to visit. Uh, So grateful for your your witness, for your work and for this time. So uh, please do uh, lead us in a prayer as we conclude our time together. Right. I'm sorry, I don't have a kid's prayer for you, but I will pray for you anyway. Lord, we're grateful for this time together. And um, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May the God of peace, the great shepherd of the sheep, bless and keep us now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Tish, thanks so much. Uh, We'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you.